When is the last time you felt real joy about your work? If you spend most of your time focused on driving results, but not on driving more joy, you probably have a joy gap. Welcome to Joy at Work. On this podcast, we'll think about how to build a culture that infuses more joy into everyday work life. I'm your host, Alex Liu, Managing Partner and Chairman of AT Kearney. We're looking back now on our first season of Joy at Work. We've had some great guests from all walks of life, academics and authors, entrepreneurs and commentators, business executives from entertainment and technology, and even a lifelong athlete representing his country and serving on pro teams too. I want to thank them all for their time and their generosity of spirit and perspective. In summary, I think we're onto something. This topic is personal, it's powerful, it has meaning, and it's relevant even in business circles. Midway through the season in July, I wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review, a pretty abstract periodical if you ask me. I can say that as an affectionate alum, on a pretty abstract topic. The topic? Making joy a priority at work. The result? 70,000 online views and reads in just the first few days. Not too shabby for something so elusive and yet so powerful. So what did I learn from the interviews? Well, the topic is clearly meaningful, and we can all take steps to be more aware of what gives us joy at work. But our guests all started from a fundamental sense of gratitude for those around them, and even structure specific time each day to reflect on that and to give thanks. What a great starting point. Callie and Catherine, for example, write personal journals during a quiet time each morning to thank those that help them, to take stock of the disappointments and frustrations of the day, maybe, but more importantly, to turn the page, to move ahead, and to pre-identify who they will positively impact that day. Ingrid takes comfort in a daily walk outside in nature and brings those inspirations gained outside into the workplace. Ken gets his fist pump from shutting down at 4 p.m. each day to play with his young daughter and spin a favorite Miley Cyrus tune after each micro success. John and Andrew draw peace and energy by quietly influencing and leading others by example in how they network and how they play on the field. So each experience is different, but the aim is the same. Proactively propel yourselves and seek joy in each moment, situation, or challenge. Don't accept a lesser fate. Don't be a victim of anything. Happiness may be the direction, but joy is the juice that gets us there day by day. I do hope you enjoy season one of the podcast and that you can tuck away some helpful tips and stories. But more importantly, you got to run your own race here. What surprised me a bit from my guests was two common elements. Number one, a lot of our joy comes from the team environment alongside others in common pursuits. And by transmitting, multiplying your positive impact to others, that comes back to you. It's a nice cycle of positivity. In sports, in teaching, in business, on Broadway, you define your own stage, and yet you can drive the success of a larger community. Second, the other common denominator to me was that all my guests had an innate curiosity that led them to new perspectives and energy and even soaring passion sometimes. But there's always learning involved. I hope you're curious enough to hear more about this topic and apply joy in your work and lives more consistently. Our first guest of the season was Ingrid Fatel Lee. She's the popular author of Designing Joy, and she had a lot to say about how important our physical surroundings are 
to bringing us joy at work, that it's actually part of our genetic makeup to respond to our environment in that almost primal way, even hardwired and unconscious to it, but also quite powerful if you really apply these principles in designing our workspaces and our personal spaces. One of the reasons that round things appear everywhere in childhood, I mean, if you look at childhood, you're right, it's, it's round. Um, you have bubbles and balloons and balls and merry-go-rounds and hula hoops. You have all these round things in childhood. And one of the reasons for that is that, you know, round shapes, circles and spheres are the safest shape. And there's actually a part of our brains that registers that even when we're adults. So researchers have placed people into fMRI machines and they've shown them pictures of angular objects and round ones. And what they found is that part of the brain called the amygdala associated in part with anxiety or threat, that part of the brain lights up when we see angular objects, but not when we see round ones. So what they speculate is that because in nature, many things that are angular, antlers or horns or sharp thorns are, are dangerous to us, we evolved an unconscious sense of caution around these shapes, but curves set us at ease. And so if we think about that in, it, you know, in terms of what we can do in an environment, we don't actually have to make something feel like a childlike environment. We can create something that is adult and mature and sophisticated, but brings in those curved elements. And maybe we stay away from primary colors, which have those sort of kindergarten associations, and we focus on the forms to create a kind of environment that feels joyful, but not necessarily too childlike. What's interesting to me, actually, is that most of the research on environments tends to be done in either workspaces or public spaces. And I think that's because companies have a stake in efficiency um, and in understanding whether these things actually have an impact on performance. And so that's why they're often studied in those contexts. So for example, you know, we can talk about art and plants in the home, but art and plants have been studied in the work environment much more than they've been studied in the home environment. So, uh, you know, a, a study that was done in 2010 looked at lean work environments, which are kind of the minimalist gray cubes that most of us are familiar with, and then enriched work environments, environments where people um, had plants and artworks on the walls. And what the study found is that people were actually 15% more productive in the enriched environment than they were in the sort of lean work environment. So I think that's something that it's just a fundamental truth about the way that we behave in space. It influ influences us whether we're at home, whether we're at work, whether we're at the DMV, whether we're at our doctor's office. All of these things are acting on us unconsciously all of the time. So often we think of joy as simply happiness, that if everything is perfect, then we'll be joyful. But in my conversation with behavioral scientist John Levy, he said that that's not how it really works. It turns out that a lot of joy is derived from pushing ourselves just outside our comfort zone and finding it in every micro situation, every day even. He also reiterated a very compelling quote, that it's not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but rather life, liberty, and the happiness of our pursuits, one by one, day by day, push that envelope. You brought up something really interesting that I, I think would be valuable to address, which is that there's this perspective of millennials that's purpose-driven. I think the, that it, if I could give a little message to the millennials out there and the next generations, that there's this kind of obsession with, quote-unquote, living your best life, or everything has to be perfect and Instagrammable and all that. And the, the funny thing is that there's no evidence that 
to suggest that like you'll really be happier having one job over another or you'll get more joy from one thing or another. At a certain point, if you're like a school teacher and you're really passionate about it, at a certain point, you're just kind of waking up and you have a lot of work to do and the kids are jerks and difficult to deal with. Or if you think you're going to be passionate, saving lives as a doctor, at a certain point, you're studying for hours on end, wishing that med school was over. There's all these idyllic assumptions about how life would be. And I look at the research, the most suggestive thing is that you find something that's engaging, that you can actually put effort towards and feel that you're making progress. Because we tend to complain when Like happiness and joy can often be ephemeral. And so we tend to notice that they're not there when we're sad, depressed, or bored. But when we're engaged in what we do, the work and the time passes quickly. And so the key is to find whatever that you can do that will be just at the edge of your capability so that you're constantly learning and growing. And the best example of this that I've seen was by a great author by the name of Shane Snow. He said, it's like being on a jungle gym. You want the bars far enough apart that you can swing and catch them. Not so far that you'll fall off the jungle gym and not so close that you can't build momentum. And it's in the momentum, right? So if I suddenly put you on in a jungle gym in the middle, you might not be able to reach the next bar because you don't have any momentum. And it's the same way with careers. If I suddenly put somebody completely unqualified as a senior vice president, they'll have no momentum and experience to keep them going. They'll fail. Like John was just saying, learning and getting out of our comfort zone is so important. Our next guest, Catherine Parsons, is an advocate for education, lifelong education. She believes we are all the CEOs of our own life, the chief education officers of our life. We should all embrace and satisfy our constant curiosity. She's the founder of Decoded, a learning platform that promises to teach its students how to code in a day. And it works. She walked our listeners through a meditation exercise that really brought home to all of us the importance of learning. Close your eyes and try it out. Okay, I'm going to invite everyone who's listening to this to close their eyes, close your eyes. And I want you to go back and find a moment in time when you had a transformative and life-changing learning experience. A learning experience that changed you, that changed the way that you live, it changed the way that you think, it changed who you are. Go back and find and recreate that moment. What's the light like? Who's in the room with you? How do you feel? Find that moment and relive it. And now I want you to come back, capture that moment and come back to now. I thought that was pretty cool. It was a simple reminder that learning is something that we have to do every day and it can expand our horizons so very, very much. Now let's switch gears and dig into the world of show business. I think we can all agree that the broader world, the business world can be pretty stressful, especially in these days. But Broadway can often provide an entertaining escape. What we learn in this episode is that it's a whole different animal, creative and rigorous at the same time, requiring 
painstaking detail to the audience experience and requiring attention from the talented performers that re-energize themselves for every show, every day. When I spoke with Tony Award-winning Broadway producer Ken Davenport, he told me that like many entrepreneurial ventures, accepting and coping with failure, but learning from them is absolutely key. 80% of all Broadway shows fail and only 20% succeed. I asked Ken how he brings joy to work when so much is on the line and how he creates timeless stories on the stage where we can all see the superheroes in us and in those situations. It strikes me, and again, I'm just being a novice here, there's so much attention to detail and rehearsal along the way to get to the chance to be 20%. Is that also a happy experience that, that you know, or, or is the reward basically the applause, you know, and everyone jumping up and down on tables, which is we all we all strive for. What about the other 80 percent, though? Is that not a joyful experience if you're not successful in having people jump out of their seats? It's different for every time you create a show. And it depends on the people involved, of course, just like, again, designing any product anywhere. We are dealing with theater people. We are dealing with artists. So often those artists can be a little bit more emotional than say a coder or an engineer that may be working on a new robot, right? So we have a very unique group of people that put our shows together. They are artists, they are theater makers. But every time a show is made, that collaborative process is different. Everyone is their own unique element, right? And there is a chemical reaction that occurs when you put all those elements together to create something new. And it's different. Look, very famously, Gypsy, this one of the best musicals ever written, was one of the worst creative process. Like people hated each other on that show, hated each other, screaming and fighting. There's this famous story about the book writer writing in a jab at the director into the show that you can still see today. Like it, it was awful, but it created one of the most significant musicals of the 20th century. So it's always different. I try, of course, to make them, it's my job as a producer, to try to make it the most entertaining experience in the creation as possible because I, I, my quote is this, I'm in the entertainment business, right? My job is to make people have a great time. If we're not having a great time while we're doing it, how can we expect an audience to have a great time while they're seeing it? So that's, that's my mission is I do everything I can to make sure it's a real positive experience because I do believe that out of people enjoying going to work and going to a rehearsal room and creating a piece of theater is work. If those experiences are filled with joy, then certainly the end result will be more joyful as well. My favorite sport of all time is rugby. And I was bursting with enthusiasm to interview Andrew Suniula, whose professional rugby career has taken him all around the world. Whether snug in the cradle of world-class rugby, New Zealand, as well as in Australia, after growing up with a rugby fanatic family in his native American Samoa, and finally winding up in an unlikely spot as Iowa in the heartland of the U.S. Andrew played for the U.S. Eagles, the national team, for almost 10 years, literally at the center of all the action and the center of the back line. We talked about how his experience at a remote U.S. rugby camp in Iowa rekindled his joy for the game after having suffered some career setbacks. He also shared some wonderful life lessons about what it takes to be a good teammate, a good captain, a good coach, 
and now as a good general manager. Yeah, I got an email from Al Caravelli and Peter Thorburn, who was the USA Rugby, um, the Eagles coach at the time going into the 2007 World Cup. I guess they had found out combing over world rugby who was eligible for USA and they had heard that I was playing for Taranaki because, you know, I was born in American Samoa, so I possessed a US passport. And that was the first time I thought, you know, rugby in America was, was a thing in my head. And then the emails came through. As in, hey, would you like to come over to USA and have a go at the USA Sevens program? Or do you want to have a go at the USA World Cup in 2006? Uh, sorry, for the 2007 World Cup. And in my head, I was trying to be an All Black. So I was like, um, you know, I'll keep it in my back pocket. But then eventually I came around where I did reach out to, to Peter Thorburn about, you know, getting involved in the 2007 World Cup. It was, you know, it was too late then. And I had already moved on to Rugby League for the Manly Sea Eagles in the NRL. But I wanted to put my name in and thought the World Cup at the time would be a, a good stepping stone. And so instead, because he had um, selected his team already and they were about to go into Paris for, for camp and start the tournament, he sent me to Iowa in the, uh, middle of America for the fall season to try out American rugby. I went out there in Iowa in 2007 just to feel it out before I start my contract in Sydney. And it was my introduction to American rugby. Loved every bit of it. Everyone was saying, why would you go to Iowa of all places? <laughs> a lot of people may ask that question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still ask that, but it was one of the greatest times. You know, ironically, we're talking about joy, you know, in work, but that was like one of the most joyful times of my life especially playing rugby because no one knew what was going on. No one had any idea where I was. I guess the pressure of uh, what I'd put myself or just the pressure of playing rugby in New Zealand was off my shoulders. I knew I had a contract to go back to. That was the first time I really, really fell in love with the game, really fell in love with what I was doing. You know, it, it showed validity of the work I'd put in before. So I guess the culmination of that feeling in that particular time in my life and then where I was just really opened me up to saying, oh, you know, maybe I can do something here in America, in America and rugby. And really, I saw a future there for the first time, even though I was leaving to continue my career in Australia. The guest for our final episode of the season was Callie Field, the Executive Vice President of Customer Care at T-Mobile US, one of the most dynamic and successful phone companies globally in the last five years. Callie got her start at T-Mobile literally selling cell phones in an elf costume in a mall after an interrupted career as a civil rights attorney. Now, she manages 30,000 employees, and she admits she didn't just get there on hard work alone. She had mentors along the way who inspired her, and she is clearly paying that all back now in so many ways. She and I discussed the joy of mentorship and truly caring about those around you as a life force in itself and as a purpose in itself. We pondered how sharing the lessons you've learned with others is one of the most empowering, joyful, and fundamentally truthful experiences that you can have. There was a woman who was my second grade Sunday school teacher. Her name was Nedra. And when I was in the second grade, she like pulled me aside and like put her hands on my shoulders and just very lovingly was like, you are so special. And you're going to do great things with your life. What if I was in the second grade, you know, mm. I have never forgotten that. Not ever. And I still talk to her. We have very different politics today. We're not, we don't have much in common, except for that woman spoke hope into my life. And I'll never forget what that feels like. I think about that a lot when I meet kids or talking with people and starting out in their careers, or sometimes I mentor high school students. And 
I just think how powerful that was for me. Like I felt like that I had a special role to play in this world. I can think of times when I was not being kind to myself or when I was really not making great decisions and how that was so alarmingly powerful. So that's from the way, way back. My parents have been unbelievable mentors and they're people that I call that are very safe and very encouraging and quite loving. And then I think, you know, from a business perspective, I think, you know, I look at the relationship that I have with Mike, who's our COO and president, or with John, or one of the other guys on the team, Dave Carey. Those three, in very different ways, have empowered me to take risks and lean into the person that they believe that I am which is awesome. If you've had people that believe things about you that you don't even know yet or haven't realized, and then push you to be more of that person that you knew you could be, that is an unbelievable, almost indescribable gift. And for whatever reason, that's been my experience over the last four years at T-Mobile. And you know, you hear people talk a lot about having a mentor and having a sponsor. And those three have been a combination of some people that were willing to put their names on my back and push me into a position that I was not ready for, but saw something in me. And I think for me, I try and look around my team, our company, and even with kids in high school or, you know, just in the community that I run into to say, how how can I be that for those people? Because it's so it's so beautiful. And I think back to joy, when you get to to serve somebody that way or love them or, you know, help them engage with their life differently. Man, that's that's better than a paycheck. That's better than a title or an accomplishment. I think it makes my soul expand, you know? And that's pretty awesome. Here's our challenge to you. When you think about what success looks like at your organization, Try to include joy in the conversation. Joy matters. It's clear and it's resounding and it's all around us. Stay tuned for more conversations about joy at work from AT Carney. I can't believe season one is over. I'm already looking forward to season two and we've got some great ideas percolating already. Give us your ideas too. We'll be back with season two before you know it. <laughs>